I'm going to give a preface that because everything ties in with the second coming in eschatology, I focused on Luke and Luke's approach. Broader questions may well find me punting. I'm just telling you that right up. There's fewer issues that are more complicated, and um, so I'm just letting you know the broader we go on this, you may have me punt. But with that, questions from Lee's got a question. Uh, we got a quite. We got a. We got a. We need. We got a mic. Alex left the mic up here. Look at Colleen standing in her husband's stead. What a help me. Fantastic. Okay, the question that escaped me last week. I had the mic. Was we were talking about the um, the uh, the the Holy Spirit, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the unforgiving, unforgiven sin or whatever. Um, And here's my question. Do all the damned, damned people in hell, blaspheme the Holy Spirit by rejecting his testimony concerning Christ? I don't believe so, because not all people have had the Holy Spirit testify to them concerning Christ. There are peoples who've died, who've never heard the gospel witness, who've never um, had the opportunity to blaspheme the Spirit's testimony to who Jesus is. That, that, certainly the people before the cross um, would be everyone from before the cross. Um, so, no, I don't think so. But, hey, that's a good question. You certainly read it in a very dramatic sense. I like that. Oh, she wrote it down. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. Any other thoughts, questions, a haiku? Anybody? Okay, we just covered the second coming. Okay, we got hands. I'm like, if people aren't asking questions, I'm doing something terribly wrong. Oh, Greg snuck in. This really isn't a question, Jeremy. It's just, you've said this before about seek plain sense, no other. Can you say that again for me? Okay, seek. Okay, if the plain, if the plain sense of a text makes common sense, seek no other sense, lest you yield Nonsense. I believe that's from Hendrickson. Um, could be wrong. I think it's Hendricks or Hendrickson. What? <laughs> no. No. Um, but the, the basic thought being this. If you read a passage and it makes plain sense, don't try to find some deeper spiritual hidden underlying thing. Like, certainly there are places where like, okay, what do we do with this, these... Things have wheels with eyes within eyes. and Okay, yeah, admittedly, something weird is going on here. We have to try to figure that out. But, you know, if the text says Abraham got up and went over here, this is a deep signifier of how man's rejection... No, this is Abraham got up from Earl and we went over here. I mean, if, if the plain sense makes common sense, just stop. That's good. And so when God says, hey, I'm going to rebuild the walls, okay? <laughs> to me, that's just pretty straightforward. He says he's going to rebuild the walls. Greg. How do you uh, square that with <clears throat> some of the prophecies that were spoken to David that then are <clears throat> ultimately find their fulfillment in Christ? So you would think the plain sense, the common sense, would be David's son, Solomon. Yeah. Um, but in reality, the, the text is, is looking So you're talking forward. about 2 Samuel 7. I don't think there's anything there. Let's go take a look. No, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm just saying, like, no, you got to give me an example, Greg. You can't make up hypothetical. <laughs> how problems. do how do we, you know, seek the plain sense sure. for common sense, but at the same time, 
as, as, as we're reading our Bibles, looking at, and now obviously the New Testament writers have done the work for us and, mm-hmm. you know, in some like obscure passages, what we think yeah, might yeah. be obscure passages yeah. saying, you know, this actually refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll give you a better one. Um, Hosea, out of Egypt, I called my son. So I don't think there's any issue with this. I don't think there's any of complication in 2 Samuel 7. But in Hosea, Hosea is clearly referring to Israel being called out of Egypt where they enter into sonship with God corporately. Um, Israel is God's firstborn. And then Matthew applies that to Jesus. There's one where it's like, okay, I thought that was about Israel. I'm not saying everything. In every case, always, ever, and for always, amen, is the plain sense. That's a good place to start. I would start with default. If the plain sense makes common sense, why don't we start there? Now, if there are other reasons that come up and other things you read that challenge that, by all means, consider something else. I'm just saying, instead of defaulting to the mystical interpretation, default to the plain sense interpretation as your starting point. It, obviously, it's not as simple as that in every instance. I'm, I'm simply saying some, some people are looking for like deep, hidden things under every stone. Start with the plain sense, and then you've got to come up with contextual, textual reasons for why you're going to abandon the plain sense and go to something else. That, that's all. Um, does, that, does that make more sense, what I'm getting at? So I'm not, it, I'm not saying biblical interpretation is one rule, plain sense, done. Start there. And then come up with reasons for why you might leave that and, and be able to justify why you might leave that. Um, that's, that's all as a maxim that's meant to be. I just know that with the whole um, end times debate, sure. yeah, yeah. that it's admittedly, yeah. you know, difficult on on some points, yeah. and so it almost encourages you to look f- beyond yeah. the plain sense to, yeah. um, you know, what the what, what God is trying to point at and reveal through the right. the whole of Scripture. Well, no, and to be honest, I mean, I don't want to straw man the other guys. Um, to be honest, the reason why the people, the Amil camp, spiritualize those passages is because they think, one of the things that makes, that's not even, that's an orphan sentence, because they think other things are clear. So one of the things that's difficult is, based on what you think is clear and certain, is what you're going to use as your guidepost to then maybe tweak or take spiritually something else. You know what I mean? So um, if you think, as the Amil folks do, that the New Testament is clear, there is no future for Israel, God's done. Ah, mill. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom is drawing near later on in the passage, the kingdom is that millennial kingdom. So the different categories of the way people view the future. Oh, yeah. So, so the ah, mill camp, good guys, you know, um, in-house, they think the New Testament's clear that the church is God's program for the future, and that's it, and the Jews are welcome to join the church, uh, bless them, but that's it. And once you start with that certainty, then when you go back to the Old Testament, you see all these, I'll rebuild Jerusalem, I'll regather them. Because you've already established, well, no, that ain't going to happen. Now you're forced to come up with some other meaning. Um, I just think there's way too many and way too specific promises of regathering and rebuilding to just say, oh, that doesn't mean what it says. But, but probably the most specific point I'd say is if you take that approach... In Deuteronomy 28 and 29, where you get an entire chapter of God saying, hey, if you're faithful, this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to, I'm going to bless you, and you're, you're, you're going to have kids, and you're going to have crops, and you're going to have political safety in among the nations, and you'll have honor. But if you're not, I will drop these curses on you, and I will scatter you, and you'll be in terror. 
So here's this A, B, right? If you do this, if you're faithful, good things. If you're unfaithful, bad things. Now, everyone reading through Israel's history recognizes God literally fulfilled the curses. The curses literally happened. They're taken off the land. But to take the Amil approach, you then have to spiritualize the promises, which becomes very difficult to explain. How, how can in one, in one passage the, the promise blessings be spiritualized but the cursings be absolutely literal. So that's one, another more place where I think it's, like, that's, that's a problem. I'm also by no means convinced that the New Testament says God's done with Israel. And we had it in the notes, but Romans 9, 10, and 11 is really clear as well, I think. Um, but it all starts, one of the things that makes this so difficult is you've got to answer different questions. And based on which questions you answer first will determine the answers to the future questions because everyone's trying to harmonize. Everyone's trying to get everything to agree. You're trying to find a way of reading the text that doesn't have your understanding conflicting with other passages. You're trying to find a way to get all the jigsaw puzzle pieces to fit and make a coherent picture. We aren't forcing pieces in. And so inevitably you have to start with this piece and this piece and this piece. But as you do that, you've got things you think you've figured out and then you're trying to add new pieces in. But if the pieces you think you figured out actually don't fit very well, it's going to ripple out to affect everything else. So it's, it's a really tough issue because you've basically got to harmonize Zechariah, um, Joel, uh, the last eight chapters of Ezekiel, um, a bunch of the minor prophets, Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, the book of Revelation, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and um, Jude as well. You've got to harmonize all that. And probably a couple hundred other isolated passages. That it's a lot of it's just it's a big task. Um, but I look at like say Luke, and you start who's he talking? He's talking to Jews. He's looking at a physical temple with real stones that people are marveling at. How he has to be talking about that? How suddenly he jumps to something figurative is beyond me. So if we just take him at his word. City's going to be destroyed, trampled underfoot till the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled, which indicates that's not the end. It's only until then. And then he's going to return. Now, there are some people who think everything Jesus... Another view, um, which is, I think is really bizarre, is full preterism, which thinks everything Jesus spoke about this morning took place in 70 AD. Every bit of it. And at that point, you have to, you have to really tone down the language of the Son of Man returning in his glory to... You know, there's, there's a meteor in the sky or something. No, so seriously, they try to do... Anyway, um, so again, the plain sense seems pretty plain. And part of what I was trying to show this morning is what Jesus says he's going to do is completely in line both with Old Testament predictive prophecy and the way the book of Revelation picks it up and runs with it. Like, we don't get any implication this is anything other than what it plainly says. So it's not just standing in isolation, but it's in continuity with what was said before and what is said after. All saying in one voice, the same thing. Any more than that, or is that... That's good? Okay. Other questions? Oh, Dan Barth. In verse 27, then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift your heads because your redemption draws near. Is that referencing the rapture that's about to happen, or is this after the tribulation and it's the second coming? Good question. Like, like I said earlier, 
Jesus doesn't have any of that in view in this text, but as best as I can harmonize it with other passages. Um, so Jesus is asked a question about this city, this temple, this place, what's going to happen when he's returning, and all of his answers center around that. So um, as we harmonize in, and most of this we get from First and Second Thessalonians, the church is already gone at this point, out of the picture. Um, these are the imminent events. So the abomination of desolation is midway through the tribulation. Um, and what we're looking at is literally minutes, hours, days before the return of Christ. Um, I, I don't know how long they're going to see him before he comes. <laughs> but he's referencing, I think that these things are the, the, the sun, moon, and stars that are unmistakable. And so those seem to be the most imminent harbingers, Re- Revelation 6, um, where you at least have some time to either change your mind or find a cave to crawl into. Um, so I, th- I think that's other these things. But yeah, we're, we're out of there. I mean, the church, the last time you see the church in Revelation is at the end of three, and it doesn't show up again until 21. And I think the rest of it, Revelation is Jewish history. Um, but that's my short answer for you. Jacob Moore. Oh, dear. Can we, is there anybody else who has a question? <laughs> anybody at all? The, okay, this, we'll just get out early then. Okay, sorry, Jacob. <laughs> this is, uh, I just don't actually have an answer for this, so I was <laughs> curious. I told you I might punt, so you might very well get me punting. Um, in the passage directly following the one you taught on today, when it talks about, um, let me see, verse 32... Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. How do you take that, this generation? We'll find out next week. <laughs> I, I can t- I've, I'm only dealing with the text. I mean, I've done some future texts. My, my off-the-cuff thought, and I will certainly, that's going to be one of the major issues to be dealt with next week, so, is the generation to which the this is the generation that sees these things happen. Um, I... That, that's the, the, the primary strength of the preterist view that says everything happened in 70 AD is they want to make the this the people Jesus is talking to. And admittedly, if it's the people Jesus is talking to, it's going to have to be 70 AD. Um, and that's their strongest argument is Jesus' emphatic this generation. Um, but if you take the this to be whichever generation is the one that sees these things, and you, you already even see the shift in verse 20, when you see Jerusalem, but then he starts talking about those people. So does Jesus expect his audience to see this? Or will the people living at that time be those people? There's already some ambiguity that indicates he's not necessarily saying to the crowds in the temple, you will all see this happen. Um, but I, by, you'll, I'll, I'll double down next week or I'll change my mind. But right now my thought is it's the, the, this generation is the generation that is alive to see those events. If, if that's the case, then it, all of those signs should take place within a single generation. Yes. And based on our reading of, we've got seven years, all this stuff's going to take place, Jaron, um, which is much, much less than a generation. Mm. So then the surrounding of Israel, destruction of it, even though that took place in 70 AD, you wouldn't say that has taken place. Oh, no. I, I thought I said, if I didn't say it clearly, let me say it again. Whatever... What Jesus is talking about, the surrounding of Jerusalem, could, can by no means be accounted as being fulfilled in 70 AD. 
Whatever 78, 78D might be a precursor or it might be a foretaste. No, no, to the days of vengeance that everything written might be fulfilled. Yeah, that has not happened remotely. What, what, what that's talking about is Zechariah 12 and 14, which is imminently before, we saw in Zechariah 14, the city surrounded, then God goes out and fights and he sets his feet down on, like these are hours before the second coming. These are imminent events. So then you'd have to have the temple rebuilt and then destroyed before he comes? Yes, or, I think and, so. And then built again? Because I thought the, I thought the, uh, the uh, whatever it is, the, something of desolation. The abomination that makes desolate takes place within a temple, and that will not be the temple described in the last eight chapters of Ezekiel, that's for sure. Yeah. So, yes, there are two more temples for the Temple Mount to come. Yes. Huh. Well, look forward to next week. <laughs> okay. Oh! His mother. So there really are two more temples to be built? Yeah. Some action takes place in a temple in Jerusalem in the future. Okay. And then Ezekiel describes a temple that will exist during the, the kingdom. Oh, the new temple. temple. Yeah. Okay. So right. there's at least those two, and based on my reading of the Bible. So does it look as if the first three and a half years of that seven-year period will be the building of the temple, and then uh, the, the um, Antichrist sets up his throne, if you will, and then things fall apart? Uh, I don't know in what timetable it... it um, in what timetable, how quickly they build it. I know that the first three, three and a half years is a peace treaty, and things seem to be at peace. And then that's broken, and an abomination that makes desolate occurs. And um, that's, that's, a, that's a marking point. As people look through, like, what are events that seem clear? And, and that's right in Daniel uh, 9, that there's the one who makes desolate is happening. So... Um, that seems as though, at that point, the nations turn on Israel, even though there's a peace treaty in effect, and that it gets surrounded. Sieges can last long times, and you read it in Zechariah, and it sounds like one day. Who knows how long that siege takes place? Um, and then, at the end of the siege, as it looks like they're defeated, as the people are being carted off, Zechariah 14, the Lord returns and he fights. Uh, and his foot touches down on the Mount of Olives. And... The, how exactly that happens, I mean, some creative fiction that you can read. Um, but how exactly that's pieced together and how long some of that stretches out. Because he keeps talking about in that day, in that day, in that day. But, you know, that day, the days of Noah. I mean, the day doesn't have to be in 24 hours there. It can, in that time period, that, that when that happens. So it could happen rather quickly or it could happen, you know, over a slightly more extended period of time. But the events are nations gather around Jerusalem. In a very similar, whether it's immediately after or at the same time, these cosmic signs happen. The earth is terrified. Jesus comes and he um, fights and defends his people. The other event that we didn't, I had to cut out from this morning is the Lord doesn't come and fight for Israel until Israel converts. And so in Zechariah 12, it, yeah, let's go to Zechariah 12. This is one of the coolest passages in the Bible. Um, Predictively. So the, the siege of Jerusalem is, is told twice in Zechariah 12 and in 14. 
Um, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches, stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. So it'll be specifically around Jerusalem, but make no mistake, it's really an attack on all of Israel, right? On that day, I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. That's another reason, by the way, 70 AD can't be this. Only one nation gathered around Jerusalem in 780. That was the Roman nation. Um, here, it's multi... I mean, and, and some people have argued, well, Rome conquered everybody, so the Roman army is everybody. Maybe, but okay. Um, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. Then uh, the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, inhabitants of Jerusalem of strength today... So in 12, it's depicting the, the triumph. 14 is the defeat triumph motif. But I want to zoom down to um, verse 7. On the, that the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, and the glory of the house of David, and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not be surpassed. Uh, verse 9, And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come up against Jerusalem, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem spirit of grace, pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. So it's remarkable. It's in the middle of all of this crazy prophetic pictures of war and sieges and destruction. They're going to pierce me, and they're going to look on me whom they have pierced. And they're, I mean, hundreds of years before crucifixion was a practice they're going to look on a pierced one who's hard to distinguish from God himself. They look on, I mean, you almost have to ask, are they looking on the Lord? Are they looking on me? Are they looking on him whom they have pierced? And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then the rest of 12 and even 13 describe the spiritual restoration. So you put all that together, what you get is, in the midst of this siege, in the final seconds of the clock, there is a national conversion. They will get that they, we, we killed him. We put him to death. What have we done? And they will convert. This will be at God's initiative, not because they used their free will, but because God poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. And then their Messiah will come and fight for them when they are a repentant and believing people and not until... Um, which is one of the reasons we don't want to be blind Zionists. Um, like I was saying earlier, an unrepentant, unfaithful Israel has no divine claim on anything other than cursings. So they may well have a just claim to the land, but they have no divine claim to the land while they remain covenant breakers. Um, so, anyone want to run with that? Oh, Dan Barth. So this is... Back that same area, verse 27, ties right into what you were just talking about. Um, God pours it out, that, and Israel converts. So in, then they will see the Son of Man, so that's collective Israel. Yeah. Does that, in your understanding, does that also include people who were still on earth after the rapture that may have converted after yeah. the rapture? Sure, sure. 
Because I know we, there's some people. We know, yeah, we know. If you keep re- if if this if the cos- if I'm right in saying that the cosmic signs of 25 sync up with Revelation 6, well, then you got all the events from Revelation 6 to 19, 20, 21 that take place where a, a gospel goes out and people hear and. Yeah, there's going to be converts as well, absolutely. And I think that's who Jesus is finally speaking to when he says, when you see these things, take heart. Whoever you are, if you're alive on earth when this stuff happens, everyone else is cringing, hiding in caves, saying, "Ah," and you're going to perk up and, you know, your head, the picture of your head being down, lift lift up your head as you're discouraged. I mean, these people are going through a rough, rough time, and then they see those things, the sun's blocked out, and they're, okay, it's imminent, it is here, and they're taking courage and taking heart because um, he's going to bring in a kingdom a little later in Luke. Next week we'll see that. Um, so, so, yeah, that's, that's, I think, who he's talking to is whoever, this is recorded in the Scripture, so whoever is alive when and where that happens has some word of instruction and encouragement for that. Because remember, the question is, when will these things happen? What will the sign be of your coming? Well, here's the sign of my coming, and here's my counsel to those people who are alive to see it. There's no specific indication it'll be you, you know, or me, or anyone. But there it is, so that those people in that time have some instruction and word of what to do and how to view it. Anybody else? Oh, Greg. Deb. I was continuing to read in Zechariah and I'm wondering does 13 not still continue the proof that Israel will turn to the Lord and repent yeah on that day yeah what what you read about is the spiritual renewal that takes place on that day declares the Lord of hosts I'll cut off the names of the idols in the land so they shall be remembered no more I will remove from the land the prophets and the Spirit of uncleanness, if any, and yeah, absolutely. You're, that's the sort of pause, and we pick it back up in fourteen. And fourteen, by the way, ends with a kingdom. I mean, keep keep reading from where we left off in fourteen. So we we left it at fourteen four. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. I just I just think it's cool how things tighten and they sync up so tightly. You know, Acts one eleven, same manner you saw him depart, he'll return. I mean, it's that precise. And so, verse 6, on that day there shall be no light, cold, frost, there shall be a unique day known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but in the evening there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day the Lord will be one, and his name one. And then we read in verses 10 through 15 about the destruction of the armies that would fight God. And then in 16, what do you have? Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths, which will be intense. It's because it's the Feast of Booths. It's intense. Okay. Okay. That, that looks like a kingdom to me. Um. So that's, that's ultimately where Zechariah ends, is Israel's great day of need and their calamity, their conversion, and then their Messiah comes, and now there's a kingdom with other nations, which was exactly what we see in Revelation, um, where they're centered. So yeah, I, I see this stuff all line up nice and neatly, but anyway. Other thoughts or questions?
any of our Camp Appanoose friends. Oh, we got someone in the back. We do. Have, oh, we do. It's, I thought. I thought you. No, no, you didn't. Okay, sorry. Don't give it to Jacob. Okay. Oh, in the back, Mitchell. Um, am I correct in saying that two pieces of evidence for the second to last temple constructed are uh, first Revelation 11 um, verses 1 to 3 first it says rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there that's mm. nine chapters before the thousand-year reign of Christ. Mm. And then Second Thessalonians 2, verse 4, speaking of the man of lawlessness, he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be yeah. God. That's precisely why I would think. And, and part of the reason why uh, I think all millennialism and some of the other alternative ways of reading this took place is after 780, there was no Israel. There were no Jews as a nation. I mean, until, until after World War II, there's just been no Jewish people. I mean, they've been scattered, right? So the thought of, I mean, we're, people are going, there's going to be a new temple. Before World War II, there has to be a country, <laughs> you know? Um, it sure looks like now, and, and so you can even go online now, when Serena, Serena did a semester in Israel, and they have, they have all the temple accoutrements ready to go. You can go online, templeinstitute.org, I think. They had this gold, how big was that golden lampstand? It was covered in bulletproof glass in the middle of a square, public square, made out of solid gold. They've recently got the ashes of a red heifer. Through, through selective breeding, they were able to get a red heifer. They've got the ashes of a red heifer now. They've got all the accoutrements. They've, it functions as a temple. I mean, not as a temple, as a, like a museum uh, uh, that you can visit. But they're ready to go. I mean, if, in theory, it would appear, I mean, you have to speak speculatively, it would appear that if they had the opportunity to erect a temple on the Temple Mount, if they got control of the Temple Mount, it would appear they'd be ready to move quickly and that they could put something up relatively speedily, it would appear at this moment. Now, who knows? Who knows? What? Right. Um, and, and people have theorized there may well even be space to have a temple in the mosque on the Dome of the Rock. I don't know. And this is where we're just speculating. But all I'm saying is, prior to 1940s, you had to speculate a whole lot more. <laughs> there had to be a nation. There was no nation. Hadn't been a nation for 2,000 years. You know? Um, so I don't know how much more time there is. I don't know. I mean, Israel could be disbanded, regathered, disbanded, regathered five more times for all I know. I just know that when the end times comes, they will be on the land. They'll be there, and there'll be a temple of some sort there. Um, and it sure looks like, in theory, that could happen relatively speedily from where we're at right now. doesn't mean it will be speedy, just it could be. Um, but yeah, I, that's, a, that's a lot of the reason I think why other people came up with other symbolic ways of reading this is unquestionably the, the action centers around Jerusalem and the temple in Revelation. There was no Israel. There was no temple. So clearly this must mean deeper things. And, and now as post-World War II, um, 
it seems more and more like, hey, maybe this actually just means what it says. But it's easier for us to think that because we already see some of the necessary pieces in place. Well, why are these people so, I mean, I hate to say they're stupid, but God, what does it mean? Well, it must mean that there will never be, you know what I mean? Just instead of assuming that God's going to make his word happen, if he says there's going to be an Israel, just wait and see, you know, instead of making a whole theology to do whatever. Well, it's, it's, again, it gets down to, um, gets down to what you saw first. These, these guys, good guys, um, are convinced that they see in the New Testament the church being spoken of as Israel. So once you start with we are spiritual Israel, that, that would be sort of a foundational assumption. Once you start with we are spiritual Israel, and there's no distinction, what, the, what Israel was the church is, once you start there, then all these promises in the Old Testament about Israel now apply to the church, but they can't apply to the church literally God's not going to rebuild our walls. God couldn't rebuild the church's walls literally, right? Um, so you got to then find some way to apply it to the church. It isn't literal. But one of the more foundational assumptions is there is no difference between Israel and the church, or, or which gets to Paul's metaphor of the olive tree of the branches. Indeed, that's pretty obvious. Right. No, but that, that's really the sort of foundational issue because I, I just want you to see that once you buy the belief that Israel and the church are one or share in continuity, then the rest of it's going to follow in some way or other. So I don't want to make it sound too ridiculous, but that's why when I want to talk with folks about this, that's the question I want to discuss because I understand that's really the linchpin issue. Why let's talk about the distinctiveness or the lack of distinctiveness between Israel and the church because that's really the sort of foundational question that you've got to resolve, um, at least as I've approached it. So, if By the way, if you're interested in this, there's a little pamphlet. Um, I'll be selling the book, so I got a copy. It's really short, by Vlach, V-L-A-C-H. Um, and all it does is identify the key distinctive issues between these two views. It doesn't even necessarily argue for one. But there's so much confusion and so much straw manning. You guys know the phrase straw man means? I use it all the time. It occurred to me the other day I might want to explain it. It's when you represent your opponent's position poorly, knock it down, and then pretend you've just knocked down your opponent's position. You know, but when you've done no such thing. You, you, know, um, you really want to make your opponent's argument in such a way that if they heard you make it, they'd say, yeah, that's fair. That's what I believe. Um, and then take that on. So, like, even just at Camp Appenus, we looked at some alternate theological positions, and I printed off their own, in their own words, what they say, so we could interact with that, so it was clear that I wasn't just making a weakened version of their argument. In their own words, this is what they say, now what do we think of that? Um, And so, Vlock, what he does is he really crystallizes the two or three key issues in about 20 pages that all this stuff hinges on, and really, where you land on those two or three key issues will really, just like dominoes, where you're going to land in everything else. I, Lee, if you want, after we get done, I'll just give him a copy of my office. Um, but I think it's called Dispensationalism, Key Distinctives or something like that. We sold a couple copies in the church bookstore. But if you're interested in going further, that's a great read just because it identifies these are the two or three foundational issues you've got to work through and resolve um, and, and not be distracted by minutia on the sidelines. Okay, who next? Dave Kingery. 
the king, looking rather dapper. Uh, if this is off topic, just let me know. But uh, um, I'm it, well, getting it's ready to of, let you know. <laughs> uh, is, I, I've been hearing for the last six months or so that the Muslim Mahadi, no, Mahadi, is a, is matches the description of the Antichrist. I heard this from a guy that I didn't know anything about until just last night. I heard a real credible source. Yeah. Uh, John MacArthur, in fact, oh said the Maha, Maha, I can't, I can't say it, matches the description, their, their Redeemer matches the description of Revelation. Uh, I mean, their, their Redeemer is the Antichrist. Huh. I mean, it, it doesn't mean that he's going to be a Muslim or anything like that. It just means that uh, he was saying that uh, the description matches. Um, this may shock you, Dave. No. You're on topic. Not, but and additionally shocking, I have nothing to say because I know nothing of the oh, Mahadi. Oh, okay, okay. So I, I, I don't know. I have no opinion to proffer because I'm bone ignorant on that topic. Yeah, John MacArthur had a really good thing on that, and he 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 always states the facts and everything. He's so good about that. Yeah. But uh, another thing too, uh, this is slightly different. Is this might be off topic? So my okay, previous, my previous on topic only covers what was said previously. <laughs> Continue. Okay. Do you think do you think a lot of argument going on about eschatology and that kind of thing is because the church hasn't involved itself in more debate uh, of the issues? Um, one of the problems I keep hearing is that argument and debate is awful. It's bad, and Christians should never do that. And yet, uh, some scholar said that. Uh, uh, R.C. Sproul, I think it was, said that um, be, one of the reasons there's so many differences of opinion in, in the Christian faith and community is because there's no debate. Right. And, and I found that to be helpful to me when I listen to debate two people, two people, yeah. you know, in, a, yeah. in an organized debate going back and forth, slowly but surely, sometimes faster, the truth eventually emerges right. you know somebody is proven wrong doesn't have their that they don't have their facts together and someone else does and so uh, i'm uh, and yet i uh, i heard beth moore the other day complaining about arguing and i, I know that you like her a lot and so <laughs> I, <laughs> I, i'm sorry Dave, you're definitely off topic now. Um, but however, I do have some things to say about that. So, um, no. Yeah, that's, that's we, all I had. No, you're, you're absolutely right. We, we live in a culture, um, you hear the term postmodern, and all postmodern means is um, cultural relativism. There's given up a, a belief that we can know anything with certainty. And so what it reverts to is tribalism. Uh, this tribe believes this, this tribe believes this. I have my truth, you have your truth. But it's all predicated under the assumption that there is no real knowledge of truth that can be known. So it just basically, if that works for you, good for you, and that works for you, good for you, and this works for me, and I have my spirituality, you have your spirituality. Well, in that context, since you've fundamentally, as your starting point, given up unknowable and objective truth, what then is the point of debate? It's just a power play. You want to bully me. That's why in our culture 
Any disagreement, no matter how civil, can be viewed as a hate crime. If I just fundamentally disagree, I'm not mad about it. I disagree with someone else about what the definition of marriage is. I'm a bigot. Because there is no truth that can be sorted out, so it's purely I'm disagreeing because I want to impose my will on someone's power play. It's, 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 it's totalitarianism is the assumption. Um, so, yeah, in our culture, debate is largely... I mean, the, the presidential debates, I've seen more robust debates... I've seen more robust debates in, like, high school debate class than anything... It's just sound quipping on both sides, on absolutely both sides. Um, if there's no cross-ex, it's not a debate. That's my opinion. But if there's no cross-examination, it ain't a debate. It's, it's, it's an advertisement. Um, but, so, yeah, culturally... Debate is frowned upon, um, and because what's what's the primary virtue that our culture has is acceptance and tolerance, which if you take the classic meaning of tolerance, I'm, we should be tolerant. The classic meaning of tolerance, um, Voltaire put forward the statement, at least credited to him, is I may detest what you say, but I will fight to the death for your right to say it. So you tolerate people. We don't jail people because they disagree with us. We don't jail people because or silence them or impose the force of the state to shut them up. But, and this is under a modernist paradigm, because there is a belief in the truth, the, the, the assumption is the best means of arriving at the truth is a robust and healthy debate and the, the cream will rise to the crop, the top. So that you allow just about every viewpoint to be argued and the assumption will be, because there's a truth, and because we're rational beings, in time we'll know what's stupid and what makes sense, right? That's a modernist understanding of, of tolerance. You tolerate people, you vigorously attack ideas. So we're civil, we're polite, and I want to shred your argument because I think you're dead wrong, right? That's, that's a modernist understanding of tolerance. Under a postmodern understanding of tolerance, we tolerate all ideas, and we don't tolerate people. So now, tolerance means to be considered a tolerant person. So, so 50 years ago, if I'm tolerant, I don't think we should jail I, McCarthyism. I don't think we should jail communist sympathizers. Oh, I think they have dangerous ideas and they're wrong, but if they hold them, we should defeat them in the, in the court of public opinion and in, and in intellectual debate. Let us not use the state to silence them. If I'm tolerant back in McCarthyism, I don't want the state to coerce people to hold political viewpoints. But I want their right to hold those viewpoints. And, I'll, my, and, and I could be very tolerant and be debating with communists why I think they're dead wrong. And I'm viewed a tolerant person under that concept. Now... You're a tolerant person only if you think all viewpoints are right, or at least valid. So notice the shift. We used to tolerate people and attack ideas. Now we tolerate ideas, and if you don't do that, man, they'll attack you. They will silence you. They will charge you with hate crimes. And in some countries, just north of us or even across the pond, they'll throw you in jail. Um, so it, so it's, the view of tolerance is absolutely 180 on its head. Um, D.A. Carson's got a really helpful book, The Intolerance of Tolerance, chronicling this. Just what everything I said, I just stole from him. And he makes one final observation on this, and I'll close with this because we're about out of time, that the new definition of tolerance is both incoherent and morally bankrupt. It's incoherent because <laughs> tolerance, 
You don't speak of tolerating what you agree with. Tolerance assumes disagreement, right? So it's incoherent. It doesn't make sense for me to say I tolerate Christianity. I'm a Christian. It can only make sense for me to say I tolerate Islam or some other viewpoint, right? So if tolerance means I think everyone's right, it doesn't make any sense. That's the wrong word. But it's morally bankrupt because it proves to be most intolerant precisely at the point where the old tolerance was most broad. So in other words, we're all tolerant, but you see, if you don't buy that fundamental assumption that tolerance now means approval of every and all viewpoints, how tolerant are they of you? I mean, I'm not agreeing for a second with anything Roseanne Barr said, but you saw the, the acts come down quickly when she made some ill-advised tweets. I'm not defending a bit of what she said. I'm just, you see how fast, wham, you know, it comes down. And there are plenty of people who've ended their careers and ended their political lives over the, the tolerance brigade coming out and just, just, they just pound you into the ground. They're incredibly intolerant um, if you don't buy their fundamental premise. So that then bleeds into the church and we get really nervous and we get really uncomfortable that we seem intolerant and unloving because love now means fundamental approval, which of course it doesn't mean. My kids do all sorts of things every day that I disapprove of and I need to lovingly tell them I disapprove of them, why I disapprove of them and what they should do. Like I disapprove of them lying. I don't just say, I accept you just as you are. That's great, you just lied. I say, I love you. And because I love you, i got to train you not to lie, right? But um, so what we need is a posture in the church that is humble. We're not arrogant jerks. But yeah, we're trying to sort through the truth. And I, you mentioned R.C. Sproul. It's hysterical. MacArthur, T4G, was telling a story about one of the first times he met R.C., uh, R.C. stumbled across MacArthur. R.C. Sproul, who was already um, well-established, came across the gospel according to Jesus and some other stuff MacArthur wrote and asked him to come in and speak. And about the second or third time MacArthur had met Sproul, he's, I want to debate you on baptism. <laughs> MacArthur said, okay. And, but if you listen to the debate, I got a copy at my office. It's friendly. And they, these men think the other guy's completely dead wrong. But they're friends. And, and so our, our cultural assumes that if I disagree with you, I hate you. Right? And so we need, to, yeah, we need, it takes work to get back a category of I disagree with you, but I love you. Disagree with you, but I'm not mad at you. You know? Um, that, there's, that's, that space is largely disappearing. And then the church wanting to appear loving and appear kind doesn't want to appear to be debating anything. Um, and certainly, as Westboro Baptist proves, you can way overcompensate the other way. But somewhere in between, we can obey what Jude says, which is to seriously contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And you are dismissed. Happy Father's Day.